Today, we are ending our series in the book of Judges. So Deji was sort of right. It was just Deji gave me more scriptures than I had, so I thought I had to nod. No. <laughs> um, so in the book of Judges, we know that it describes 13 judges who rule in Israel between the great leader Joshua and King Saul. Now, if you've been coming every week or been catching up on the live stream, you will know that throughout the pages of the whole book of Judges, we see a repeated cycle. God's people rebel. God is angry. There is oppression from foreign leaders and rulers. The people cry out to God for a deliverer, and God raises up a judge. Then there's like a period of peace. Unfortunately, the judge then dies, and the people get back into sin and rebellion. And we see this cycle repeated throughout the whole book of Judges. It goes on again and again. The book of Judges, for those of you that are familiar with it and who've been tracking with us, will know that it lays out for us the harsh realities of life. And most commentators refer to the book of Judges as one of the most notorious and darkest period for God's people. Well, I warn you now this morning, it's about to get a whole lot worse. We're about to read one of the most sordid stories in the whole Bible. We're gonna see blood and gore, chaos, cruelty, sexual violence, rape, murder, the complete disrespect of women, civil war, disobedience to God's will and to God's ways. Now these final chapters in the book of, Just, book of Judges are a really contested area amongst biblical scholars and for a number of reasons and we really don't have time to read all of that today. But if you would find it helpful, I recommend reading the final three chapters together as a way of identifying the patterns that each chapter shows on each of the other chapters. Now, I would summarize it and say this. What happens to one woman in chapter 19 is reflected in the subsequent chapters as the experience of many women. We see those who are supposed to protect the vulnerable failing to do so. We see women's sexuality being used to resolve conflict. And sadly, if you've been following the BBC News, you will know that that same thing is happening today in Manipur in India. The final chapters of the book contain the most deplorable acts we see failure in self-restraint and excess violence. The body of one woman is torn apart by her husband. And the body of a nation is torn apart by its people. The contents of what we're going to read will be emotionally distressing, I would imagine, for all of us in here. In fact, the contents may even be triggering for some people. 
For some of us, it may arouse feelings or memories associated with past traumatic experiences that many of us have encountered. So I would just encourage everybody in here to do whatever is safe for you. Over the past couple of months, we have seen the evil that punctuates the pages of the Book of Judges until it morphs into this statement, which is the closing words of the entire book. Chapter 21, verse 25 says these words. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. If you'd like a Bible, if you just raise your hand, because we are going to be looking at Judges chapter 19, and it'd probably be good to just track with me in the Bible. Um, so we're going to, thanks, there's just some down the front here. Judges chapter 19. You'll find it on page 262 of the Church Bible. There's a lady down here that just, oh, there's some people down here. Thank you, thanks, Steve. And so, just sorry around here as well. We just need some more Bibles at the front, please. Thank you. Page 262, Judges chapter 19. Okay, before I invite Angie, Angie's going to come and read this story in the Bible for us. Let us just pray together, shall we? Almighty God, our Father, we recognize our need for you today more than ever. As we open up the Bible this morning, we ask you, Holy Spirit, our Comforter, that you would comfort each and every one of us, particularly those of us who have been affected in any way by the contents of the story we are about to read in your word. We acknowledge that all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness. Righteousness and holiness are what we long for. Therefore, Father, please help us to understand, reflect, and find hope in all that we read in your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Judges 19. A Levi and his concubine. In those days, Israel had no king. Now, a Levite who lived in a remote area in the hill country of Ephraim took a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah, but she was unfaithful to him. She left him and went back to her parents' home in Bethlehem, Judah. After she had been there for four months, her husband went to her to persuade her to return. He had with him his servant and two donkeys. She took him into her parents' and home. And when her father saw him, he gladly welcomed him. His father-in-law, the woman's father, prevailed on him to stay. So he remained with him for three days, eating and drinking and sleeping there. 
On the fourth day, they got up early and he prepared to leave. But the woman's father said to his son-in-law, Refresh yourself with something to eat, then you can go. So the two of them sat down to eat and drink together. Afterwards, the woman's <coughs> father said, Please stay tonight and enjoy yourself. And when the man got up to go, his father-in-law persuaded him, so he stayed there that night. On the morning of the fifth day, when he rose to go, the woman's father said, Refresh yourself, wait till afternoon. So the two of them ate together. Then when the man with his concubine and his servant got up to leave, his father-in-law, the woman's father said, now look, it's almost evening. Spend the night here. The day is nearly over. Stay and enjoy yourself. Early tomorrow morning, you can get up and be on your way home. But unwilling to stay another night, the man left and went towards Jabus, that is Jerusalem, with his two saddled donkeys and his concubine. When they were near Jabus and the day was almost gone, the servant said to his master, Come, let's stop at the city of the Jebusites and spend the night. His master replied, No, we won't go into any city whose people are not Israelites. We will go on to Gibeah. He added, Come, let's try to reach Gibeah or Ramah and spend the night in one of those places. So they went on and the sun set as they neared Gibeah in Benjamin. There they stopped to spend the night. They went and sat in the city square, but no one took them in for the night. That evening, an old man from the hill country of Ephraim, who was living in Gibeah, the inhabitants of the place were Benjaminites, came in from his work in the fields. When he looked and saw the traveler in the square, the old man asked, where are you going? Where did you come from? He answered, we are on our way from Bethlehem in Judah to a remote area in the hill country of Ephraim where I live. I have been to Bethlehem in Judah and now I am going to the house of the Lord. No one has taken me in for the night, but we have both straw and fodder for our donkeys and bread and wine for ourselves, your servants, me, the woman and the young man with us. We don't need anything. You are welcome at my house, the old man said. Let me supply whatever you need, only don't spend the night in the square. So he took him into his house and fed his donkeys, and after they washed their feet, they had something to eat and drink. While they were enjoying themselves, some of the wicked men of the city surrounded the house. Pounding on the door, they shouted to the old man who owned the house, Bring out the man who came to your house so we can have sex with him. The owner of the house went outside and said to them, No, my friends, don't be so vile. This man is my guest. Don't do this outrageous thing. Look, here is my virgin daughter and his concubine. I will bring them out to you now and you can use them and do whatever you wish. But as for this man, don't do such an outrageous thing. But the men would not listen, so the man took his concubine and sent her outside to them, and they raped her and abused her throughout the night, and at dawn they let her go.
At daybreak, the woman went back to the house where her master was staying, fell down at the door and lay there until daylight. When her master got up in the morning and opened the door of the house and stepped out to continue on his way, there lay his concubine, fallen in the doorway of the house with her hands on the threshold. He said to her, get up, let's go. But there was no answer. Then the man put her on his donkey and set her out for home. When he reached home, he took a knife and cut up his concubine, limb by limb, into 12 parts and sent them into all areas of Israel. Everyone who saw it was saying to one another, such a thing has never been seen or done, nor since the day the Israelites came up out of Egypt. Just imagine, we must do something. So, speak up. This is the word of the Lord. Probably one of the hardest sermons I've ever had to bring anywhere. Um, Really difficult preparing this, this past week. Our reading this morning ends with an ethical command, one which I pray will always mobilise God's people. It ends with, we must do something, so speak up. So firstly, I want to acknowledge that sexual violence of any kind against any person, male or female, is the worst kind of atrocity and a sign of depravity. I'm just going to summarise the story for us. The opening line of our reading this morning starts with a warning. It's like a wake-up call, if you like. It's telling us to read the scriptures through the lens of there was no king in Israel. God's people failed to recognize the leadership of Almighty God. And as a result, we see the depths of depravity that God's people sink to. In verse one of our reading, we see an unnamed Levite, a priest. The Levites are the priestly tribe responsible for the religious worship of God's people. And with him is an unnamed pilagesh, which is a Hebrew term for the word concubine. And this refers to, or it can refer to, a wife of a secondary status, not the first status wife, a secondary status, like a sex object. The woman in the story is owned by the Levite, and we can assume that they're in an intimate, hierarchical relationship. Now, it says in the scriptures that the unnamed woman is unfaithful, and she leaves him and returns to her father's home. He doesn't seem that bothered, because it took four months for him to pursue his wife in order to persuade her to return. But interestingly, when you read through the scriptures, there's nothing recorded in the text to suggest that the Levite even persuades her. Instead, we see him eating and drinking with the woman's father for five days. Finally, he pulls himself away from the banquet table to travel home at dusk on the fifth day. It's also worth noting that unlike other sections of the whole book of Judges, The characters in the story we have just read 
are all nameless. Now, the late Tim Keller has written a wonderful commentary on the book of Judges. And on this passage, he states that the reason for the anonymity of all the characters in this story is to suggest that the men and the women in the story stand for all the types of people that were in Israel at the time. He said, this is how the Levites, the religious leaders, lived. This is how the fathers thought. And this is how the women were treated as objects to own, control, and to use. And it's an extremely dark picture that gets a lot darker. So the traveling trio, they stop for the night in Gibeah, thinking they're gonna be safe because they're gonna be among God's people. But no one in the town welcomed them. The extent to which the people had fallen from God becomes really clear in that city called Gibeah, which is in the territory of Benjamin, one of the tribes of Israel. So finally, a man comes into the square, um, and he's from the Levite's own hometown, and he says to them, you can stay the night at my house, as Angie read for us. I'm just going to read verses 22 to 25 again. While they were enjoying themselves, some of the wicked men of the city surrounded the house. Pounding on the door, they shouted to the old man who owned the house, bring out the man who came to your house so we can have sex with him. The owner of the house went outside and said to them, no, my friends, don't be so vile. Since this man is my guest, don't do this outrageous thing. Look, here is my virgin daughter and his concubine. I will bring them out to you now and you can use them and do to them whatever you wish. But as for this man, don't do such an outrageous thing. But the men would not listen to him. So the man took his concubine and sent her outside to them, and they raped her and abused her throughout the night, and at dawn they let her go. Here we see the disgraceful sexual objectification of two women. The father offers his own daughter and the unnamed woman to the crowd in exchange for the safety of his guest. He literally offers the woman up for rape, saying these unbelievable words. You can use them and do to them whatever you wish. And as the crowd presses in, the Levite seizes his wife and throws her out to the violent mob. He literally, her body is offered instead of his own. The woman, and I don't mean to be offensive in this room, I really don't, but I'm gonna call this out as we would call it out in our culture today. The woman is gang raped all night long. And at dusk, she crawls back to the house where her master is staying and she collapses at the door. Is she dead? Is she alive? We don't know. This story is horrific and disturbing, and we see a pattern emerging from the characters mentioned in this story. The concubine's father, the Ephraimite, and the Levite should have protected the women in this story. But instead, 
Much like the prevailing culture, they see women as property, as somehow less valuable and more expendable than men. The text tells us that the Levite gets up the next morning to continue on his way, and he seems to have forgotten the hours of torture that must have bought his good night's sleep. And another question that arose to me when I was looking at this, this week particularly, is where is the sisterhood from the virgin daughter? She surely must have known that the unnamed woman was going to be given over to this brutal mob. Did she hear the woman banging on the door in the middle of the night? Or was she, like many of us, I'm sure, frozen in fear for her own life? Anyway, returning to the Levite. He opens up the front door and he steps out to continue his journey. And he sees his woman fallen in the doorway of the house with her hands on the threshold. So what does he do? Does he ask her, are you okay? Does he bend down and kind of want to scoop her up and just take care of her and make sure she's okay? No. Instead, he says, get up. Let's go. And there's no answer. This is such a painfully clear demonstration for me of the heartlessness of this guy to his wife. He then picks the woman up, dead or alive, we don't know, puts her on his donkey, he arrives home and takes his knife and cuts his wife into 12 pieces. And then he sends her body parts out to the 12 tribes of Israel. And when he tells his side of the story in chapter 20, he never mentions his own part in this crime. Now, like me, you might be stunned by the violence and the darkness of this tragic story. Gang rape is deeply repulsive. And sadly, it is not a story which is confined to the ancient biblical text. It is literally a present reality in our modern day culture. Women are being used as sex objects. Now, a quick Google search will reveal that sexual objectification of women is more prevalent in our society than we may want to admit. Pornography is literally available at the click of a button. But people, and people are trapped in the addiction to pornography, but I am here to say, people can receive help and can be set free. There's an even well-known, I won't say his name, but he's well-known, a social media influencer who the media call the king of misogyny. Now, his deluded and distorted views on women are influencing children as young as 12 years old. And teachers, especially female teachers and parents, are having to deal with the fallout of this in our schools right now. In the commentary that Tim Keller wrote, he poses the following question for Christian men. And I'm just going to read the question he put in his book. Are there ways in which we listen to our culture about how we should view, either treat or look at women? And in what ways are we in danger of treating women as property, as things, as objects? 
And I don't think that question is just for the men. I think that question is for us all to ponder because I also wonder how our culture is influencing how we, as women, see ourselves. My heartfelt prayer is that we would see ourselves as God sees us. We are, every single one of us, we are God's masterpiece. And I really believe that we need to live by the creation principle, that man and woman are made in the image of God. And we are both equally, intrinsically valuable. God's image is only fully reflected in both man and woman. So when we denigrate women, we are in fact diminishing part of the image of God. When we exclude women, we are excluding part of God. When we put women down, we tarnish the image of God. For those of you that are familiar with your Bible, you will know that no one dignifies, affirms, and celebrates women more than the God of the Bible. So I believe we have a responsibility as his church to lead the way and set an example of placing value upon womanhood. Now, I'm sorry to bring this message of doom today, but I'm just reading what's in the scriptures for us. The book of Judges, it really does portray the worst with regard to bad behavior. But I believe that such realism is included in the Bible to reveal something really important about life and human nature apart from Almighty God. As distressing as this story is, the book of Judges is set in the greater narrative of the whole Bible, and it really is here for a reason. Because like me, you may be wondering why on earth is that even in the Bible? But there is a reason it is in the Bible. So what might Holy Spirit be saying to us? What can we see from this tragic story? Well, I'll just put pulled out really two things. There's so much to see. As we read Judges chapter 19, many of us, I'm sure, would have remembered the parallel story that is recorded for us in Genesis chapter 19 about Sodom and Gomorrah. And it's a place that was destroyed because of its wickedness. No need to turn there, but I'm going to read a few of those verses for us. The story went like this. They called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us so that we can have sex with them. Lot went outside to meet them and shut the door behind him and said, no, my friends, don't do this wicked thing. Look, I have two daughters who have never slept with a man. Let me bring them out to you and you can do what you like with them. But don't do anything to these men, for they have come under the protection of my roof. I believe one of the things Holy Spirit is showing us, or showing me when I was preparing for this, is that we're to think about the fathers in these parallel stories. First, we have Lot in Genesis chapter 19, and then we have the Ephraimite in Judges chapter 19. Both men are willing to offer up their virgin daughters to gang rape. 
which, if the girls, if the ladies, if the women had survived, would have led to an awful life, as their prospects for marriage and security would have been limited and maybe even have been impossible. But by complete contrast, when we open up the Gospels, we see Almighty God, our ultimate Father, choosing a virgin daughter called Mary, who he describes as being highly favoured to be the mother of the Son of God. That's the contrast in value Almighty God puts on the virgin daughters. The second thing I think that I noticed as I was preparing was that all of the characters in this story are unnamed, as I said earlier. But did you notice when Angie read it, all of the places are named? Now, I don't know, but I think this is deliberate. Because in verse 1 of our reading, we read that the concubine was from Bethlehem. And I wonder whether this is included in the story so that as we're reading it, we stop and we think about, well, what else came from Bethlehem? Don't know. But we know, don't we, that Bethlehem is the birthplace of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Our suffering Saviour, whose body was beaten, battered, and then crucified, his death too was filled with blood and gore, just like the story of the concubine. But this is where the stories are drastically different. In our story we read this morning, we see the concubine's body was sacrificed by her own husband to save his own skin. Whereas Jesus Christ did not sacrifice us in order to save himself. He sacrificed himself in order to save us. I'm sure everyone in this room would agree that the Levite was a terrible husband, a really awful husband, but I think that because he's so terrible, it kind of makes us think about, well, actually, all right then, if he's such a bad husband, what does a really good husband look like? One who would sacrifice himself for his wife. One who would sacrifice himself for his bride. Well, Jesus is that true husband that the bad husband in this story is pointing to. As Paul um, Blackham said last week, the entire book of Judges has been pointing to the greatest need of all humanity, the need for a true high priest, a rescuer, a deliverer, a saviour, the true king. And I'm sure many of you would agree, without Jesus, there is no hope. Now, when you read through Judges, you can see there were some good judges that God raised up but they were all a shadow, really, a miniature portrait of Jesus Christ. And as we saw when we read through all of those chapters, none of them could provide the ultimate deliverance. When the judges died, society went into chaos. The gang rape and gruesome dismemberment of this unnamed woman in the Bible, it goes down in history as an episode of the greatest shame in the history of God's people. And we haven't got time to look at it today, but that episode is followed by a retaliation of a near genocide of a whole people group.
Now, lots of us may be thinking, oh, that's, you know, how on earth can these atrocities have even happened? How is it even possible for this, this to have even played out? Well, I think it is summed up in the closing words of the book of Judges. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And here we see humanity in its natural state. We all sin and fall short of God's glory. Sin and self-righteousness go hand in hand, and we see it in the pages of the book of Judges. And I wonder whether we see it in our own lives. I see it in my life. There is only one solution, and it is the desperate need of all mankind for a savior, a king, a judge, the one who will take our well-deserved judgment for our sin upon himself. And in essence, that is exactly the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. All of us sin, but when we do, when we acknowledge our sin to Christ, we are justified and made righteous by God through Jesus Christ. If I did not turn to God every single day in repentance, I do it every single day, I would be trapped in my sin and my self-righteousness. I would just be doing what's right in my own eyes. But when we, and it's not even a brave thing to do, when we literally confess our own darkness and reject our self-righteousness, he takes us. He moves us from being right in our own eyes to being right in his. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for revealing yourself to us through your Son, our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. We thank you that you alone deliver us from the dominion of darkness into the kingdom of light. We thank you for speaking to us through the pages of the Bible in order to transform us and set us free. Your grace is a free gift to each and every one of us who would turn to you. Father, my heart's cry is that we would know how loved we are, how valued we are, how accepted we are. We are not clothed in shame, but we are clothed in a robe of righteousness through our Saviour, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen.